If you're enjoying History's Greatest Cities, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support. I hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Hello, and welcome to the History Extra podcast miniseries, History's Greatest Cities, exploring Europe's most beautiful, intriguing and historically significant cities. I'm Paul Bloomfield, travel writer and history fan. And in each episode of this series, I'll be virtually roaming the streets and sites of a great metropolis in the company of an expert historian guide. Together, we'll delve into origin myths and uncover stories of shifting populations, conflicts and culture, wealth and weakness. And we'll visit key locations that reveal fascinating insights into the people and events that shape the modern city. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Colin Jones, Emeritus Professor of History at Queen Mary University of London and Visiting Professor at the University of Chicago. Colin has studied and lectured on 18th century France and the history of Paris for many decades. He's the author of Paris, Biography of a City, and his most recent book is The Fall of Robespierre, 24 Hours in Revolutionary Paris, published by Oxford University Press. His deep knowledge of the French capital makes Colin the ideal guide to lead us along the boulevards and riverbanks and around the monuments and museums of this captivating city. Together we'll explore bastions and burial sites and visit places of worship and entertainment. We'll also meet some of the characters who influenced Paris, Europe and the wider world over many centuries. Along the way we'll hopefully shine new light on less known aspects of this fascinating city. So, Colin, welcome. In your biography of Paris, you discuss the impossibility of writing a complete history of the city. Well, today we'll try to run through the key moments and sites in just half an hour or so. Where should we begin? Who were the first people to live in the place we now call Paris? Paris has a history going back over 2,000 years, and we really know most about it from the moment that Julius Caesar uh, in 52 uh, BCE conquered it. But we do know from archaeological evidence that there were people living in the place that we call Paris now, four or 5,000 years BCE. Quite recently, in fact, archaeologists dug up down at Bercy, which is just what's well, within Paris, but it's uh, to the east of Paris, a number of sort of dug out canoes, which show that people were there in, the, in that period. I think it's really interesting, actually, incidentally, that they were canoes, because it brings out something that's really, really important in Paris's history, which is the river running through it. And in fact, that is really important for its uh, eminence over the centuries and millennia, in fact. The fact that that river goes way back into France and is navigable right back there, but then goes out the other way towards the Atlantic means that it's a fantastic 
fantastic channel for trade and people and everything for all that period. The earliest people that were, were important, in fact, in the Roman and then the medieval city were, in fact, the boatmen. The corporation of boatmen, even under the Roman Empire, were probably the most important cooperative group. So the sort of merchants are really, really important there. I should say that the other thing which uh, maybe we could just mention initially, because we talked about the river, but the other thing that's really important is that from prehistoric times, before the Romans then, there was clearly a road, north-south road, which crossed that river. And don't forget, it's a very wide river. It is difficult to cross the further you get along it towards the sea. But we know that, well, what we have now are two islands left in the middle of the city, as you know, the Ile de la Cité, on which Notre Dame stands, and just behind it, the Ile Saint-Louis. Well, before there were quite a few, they weren't so distinct. It was a sort of marshy, boggy sort of area. In fact, the Romans called uh, Paris Lutetia, using a word that was probably Gaulish as well as uh, Latin, in fact, lutum, which means mud. So it's really, really muddy. But that muddiness and the existence of those islands uh, meant that it was crossable there. So it became a crossroads. And I think that north-south, east-west dimensions that it has for transporting men and uh, goods, etc., is really, really important. I should say that we're pretty sure that that road uh, ran down the Rue Saint- if you do this, if you're in Paris, walk down it, the Rue Saint-Denis, and then cross over the river and carry on down south but down the Rue Saint-Jacques. And that's more or less the prehistoric road that you'll be following. And obviously the river was there in prehistoric times, although it looked different uh, as well. So who were the people who were living there before the uh, the Romans arrived? What do we know about them? The Romans actually identified probably 60, 70 tribes throughout Gaul when, when they conquered it. And one of them, which is a sort of small grouping, it seems, uh, were called the Parisii, and they were, you know, in that sort of area. Interestingly, although historians and everyone has always believed that Paris was founded on the Ile de la Cité, that is the sort of uh, place that Julius Caesar remarks on, an island in the Seine, when he, he writes his, uh, his account of the war against the uh, But archaeologists found a few years ago, actually, quite a lot of uh, impressive Roman remains just a mile or so up at Nanterre, which is in the suburbs of uh, Paris and on the Seine. And there was some talk that actually the prehistoric uh, capital of the Parisi might have been Nanterre. But actually, the jury's out. But I, I... personally think that maybe Paris was right. Susa talks about an island, that probably is the island that he's thinking about. And it's certainly there that the Romans built their city of Lutetia. So the Romans arrived under Julius Caesar, and that was around 52 BC, is that right? That's right. It basically, it becomes a city in the Roman Empire. We are so used to thinking of Paris as a great, fabulous, world historical city that we have to think again when we look at the early history of this city, because really for the first 400 years, or four or 500 years of its existence, it's just a not terribly, fabulously great provincial city within greater, greater Gaul. The capital of Gaul is actually uh, Lyon. Nearly all the most impressive cities, the most impressive Roman remains are actually found in the Roman, you know, they're still there, places like Ireland, Avignon, uh, etc. So it's got this sort of of secondary status, really, as a city. And a lot of the importance which it does have is partly because it's on these, uh, this this sort of hub of uh, a transport hub, but also it's just a bit set back from 
the Roman frontier with the with the Germans. And so although um, that frontier is endlessly policed, you know, there's a sort of fortifications and armies uh, kept along there. Uh, this is a sort of reserve back headquarters, if you like, for military purposes. But it's not a great uh, city. When the Romans go, it becomes even less significant. Maybe we think maybe sort of uh, eight or nine thousand people might have been there under the uh, Romans. By the year, what by the end of the first millennium, we're talking far, far fewer than, uh, fewer than that. The city really goes into a decline, partly because Gaul goes into a decline, the West goes into a decline following the uh, Roman Empire. It's only really after year 1000, and really more or less after 1100, uh, that Paris has this uh, sudden appearance on the stage, and it sort of takes off like a rocket, takes off like a rocket in the 12th and 13th century, and is very soon the biggest city in the Western, you know, it's a world, you know, on world scale as well, it's uh, pretty large. It remains the biggest city in the West right through till the late 17th, 18th century when it's overtaken by London. But as well as size, it's always had this grandeur. It's always been a sort of magnificent city, a city which is uh, it's a capital city, uh, which uh, which flaunts itself, which flaunts power, which flaunts the power of the uh, dynasty, which flaunts uh, everything that's going on in it. What happens really in the other great change, if we're giving a very much a thumbnail sketch there, is in the 19th century, uh, when it is, you know, the most historic, the most full of great monuments of the past, etc., in the West. Baron Haussmann, the, uh, under the Second Empire of Napoleon III, the prefect of Paris, makes the Paris that we now know. He drives these boulevards through it. He destroys quite a lot of the historic uh, built environment, but he makes Paris the city of modernity, which it really becomes and then in some ways still is. Should we jump back a little bit? You mentioned, so obviously the Roman Empire, as we know, declined mostly around the turn of the 5th century. Are there any remnants from that, that Roman or pre-Roman era that visitors can see in Paris today? Yes, and what is interesting is that most of what we can see has only been visible quite recently, in fact, because Paris was so built over uh, that many of these uh, Roman remains were lost. Roman Lutetia, Paris under the Romans was essentially just about contained within, if you think of it, the the Latin Quarter, the fifth arrondissement, the left bank there, plus the two islands on the centre of the city. And with one exception, which I'll talk about in a minute, nearly everything under there, the road system, all the buildings were lost uh, and only really discovered when Baron Haussmann in the 19th century that I just mentioned was basically redesigning the city and driving these roads, these straight boulevards through the city and uncovering a lot of the Roman uh, Roman remains. Now, one of the things which uh, is I perhaps we'll talk about later is uh, it's one of the places I think people should visit if they want to, is the Roman arena, the so-called Arène de Lutèce, which was discovered precisely in the late uh, 19th century. The other place which actually was was there, although people didn't really know what, what it was, was if you go up the uh, Boulevard Saint-Michel, again on the left bank, you'll come to the Cluny Museum. It's the Museum of the Middle Ages. And part of that, part of it's a, mon- a medieval monastery, uh, but part of it is what we think is the old Roman baths. And in fact, for many many centuries people thought that this was where Julius Caesar had his palace in fact Julius Caesar did not have a palace uh, in Paris but it was about the only remnant of the Roman Empire uh, in Paris that existed in a visible form until the late 19th century for uh, 1500 years of Paris's uh, history. 
So, as we say, the, the Romans effectively left, the city declined. What changed to kickstart the growth of Paris those centuries later, so sort of in the later Middle Ages? Yes, I mean, I th- I've mentioned, I think, the geographical advantages that Paris really had, which, were, you know, was a definite asset. And the other asset, which isn't geographical, but it's historical, but initially it's not cashed in, if you like, is that from early in the 6th century, the Franks, a Germanic tribe which had uh, invaded much of Gaul and in particularly that northeast uh, corner down to uh, Paris and then conquered much of the rest of the Gaul, at least for a little while, basically, Basically, the king of the Franks in the uh, early uh, 6th century, Clovis, elects Paris as his capital. Okay, there are lots of Franks, there are lots of Germanic tribes, there are lots of barbarian tribes floating around what becomes France in that period, and they all elected capitals, but we don't think about those. The point was that the Franks became the core of the dynasty, which then basically became the dynasty which ruled France through the Middle Ages. So although it's a a key asset which which Paris holds in its hands, that it is a capital city, it's only really cashed in uh, when from the 11th and 12th century, Paris really becomes a power, as I say, it shoots up into, into the air. And that's because the Capetian dynasty really becomes powerful. It knocks out the uh, the English who have established uh, an empire, the Angevin and Plantagenet Empire in eastern uh, France. It, it absorbs the Normans. It builds up northern and then the, the much of the rest of uh, southern France into the kingdom of France. Other things are going on there as well. I think that, you know, the capital city of a a major king, but also from the 12th century, really from the 12th and 13th century, the city becomes one of the most important intellectual centres of the West. And I think it could claim from the 12th and 13th century to be the intellectual hub, the intellectual centre of Western, Western Europe. This is because of the growth of the university. Initially, teachers standing around in the street with groups of young men and students listening to them and and taking it all in. How has it all changed, you may uh, ask. But then becoming more institutionalised, the Sorbonne is created, at first the college and then the other colleges. University of Paris, very much like Oxford and Cambridge or other medieval universities where there's sort of colleges dotted around the the site. Most of those were actually uh, destroyed or used for other purposes after the French Revolution. But a very sort of collegiate city People call it the Latin Quarter, I think really only from the 19th century, because the idea is that on the left bank, you only spoke Latin. You could only hear these students speaking Latin because that was the language of instruction. I think very unlikely uh, uh, to be true. But it does have that sort of southern intellectual centre. It becomes the centre of book production, even before print, actually. So manuscript illumination are taking place there. It becomes then the publisher's hub once the print comes in in the, uh, the 15th century. Even today, if you walk around the Latin Quarter, you see lots of the big publishing houses have their headquarters there. So that's a sort of vocational thing of that area. The southern Paris, Paris of the left bank, is the Paris, the intellectual hub. And that mixture of intellectual hub, geographical trading hub, and then capital city, political power, political authority, I think is really, really important. And how did they impact on the the physical structure of the city how did it grow and what did it look like at that time 
Yeah, Paris is it's it's in some ways it's a it's a legible city. Its history is legible in that you know it sort of starts out in the middle and then grows outwards. You know, whereas at London, obviously you've got the city and then you've got the, the Westminster, it becomes a bit more complicated. But Paris just sort of expands outwards from it like a sort of expanding dartboard or, or, or something. You know, when you look at the medieval city on a map, what strikes you is how small it was. Actually, it was a big medieval city, but but uh, we do start getting walls around it from the 12th sensible walls, which are around it. They take more of the right bank, the sort of business and, and you know central government uh, under the, within them than the uh, than the south bank. But when you look at you look at the map of Paris, and people will know, uh, listeners will know where the Louvre is. Well, the Louvre was the western wall. That was the western wall of Paris. So it's rather small. It then expands. Obviously, the suburbs grow up around it, and then they become incorporated in, and the city grows and grows over the uh, centuries. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. So you mentioned the Capetian dynasty, so the dynasty founded by Hugh Capet. So what happened to the Capetian dynasty? And, you know, we know of the the great emperors, the great kings of, of late years. What happened after that period, the 14th, 15th century? The Capetians are a lucky dynasty. They, they for generations, they they produce an heir, a male heir, and there's no problem, there's no hassle. You just get on with uh, governing. But in 1328, their luck r- runs out. That there is then a dispute over who should accede and what the laws of succession were. And it's interesting and relevant, really, because it leads to a pretty grim period in Parisian uh, history and indeed uh, French history more generally, because the, there is a dispute over the succession, which involves the French on one side, who supports a, a collateral line of the Capetians, the Valois, becomes the Valois dynasty. But the English through uh, intermarriage, uh, et cetera, et cetera, also have their claim uh, on the uh, French uh, throne. And this leads, in fact, less than 10 years after the accession of uh, the first uh, Valois in 1328 to the beginning of what historians uh, have called the Hundred Years' War. The Hundred Years' War is a pretty grim period for Paris and for much of France. It becomes the battlefield, if you like, for these two major powers of Western Europe, slugging it out. And indeed, when things go really badly for the French at the end of the 14th and then into the 15th century, actually, as as we all know, as uh, 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 people with British uh, Herod's Battle of Agincourt in uh, 1415 completely crushes the French military machine and leads to an alliance uh, between England and France in 1420, which actually sets up, interesting really, it never really worked, but essentially a dual monarchy with the uh, son of Henry V due to become the king of England and France. And indeed, Paris is occupied by the English from 1420 to 1435, and Henry VI of England is actually crowned King of France 
in Notre Dame Cathedral. I should say that is interesting and also a sort of piece for uh, the trivia competitions because he's the only king ever to be crowned, I believe, in Notre Dame because just about all of the French kings, their customary uh, ceremonial uh, place of coronation is Reims uh, in the east, east of France. 1435, the English fall back. By 1450, they're, they're out. But this has been a tough period. There's an economic depression. In 1348, you've had the Black Death, which wipes out maybe a third, maybe up to a half of the population. Cities in very, very tough times. And it only really starts reviving at the end of the 15th and into the 16th century when you get the, the, the Renaissance coming through. And how did that affect Paris, the Renaissance, obviously intellectually and artistically, but also physically and politically? Yes, there's a lot of a lot of building in the Renaissance period, uh, and the and the city expands. It's, it expands out to uh, to sort of well, if you think of the area of the inner what are called the Grand Boulevard, Paris is sort of within that, and it's on the left bank uh, as well. You've got many of the uh, great uh, buildings that we go and see now. Uh, the Louvre would be the best example. Also, as you go into the 16th and, and to the 17th century, you've got uh, many of the other uh, great buildings, the the Anvers. Uh, well, Notre Dame's been there uh, before, but uh, and and also the changing of the street plan as well. With the expansion comes uh, the uh, creation on the western side of the Champs Elysees and the Place, what is now the Place de la Concorde, is originally the Place Louis Louis XV uh, in the in the 18th century. One of the things which always um, strikes me about Paris, looking around, I wonder whether the others do as well that. The, the colour, the sort of tonality of the built environment is very specific. I mean, it's partly to do with the, the light, I think, in Paris, which has a certain quality, which actually even the Roman Emperor Julian mentioned in the 4th uh, uh, century. But, but it's also that the materials of which uh, the built environment is made are actually very distinctive. And they are under Paris. Paris is a city that's built itself, if you like, from, from its innards. It's gone down. These, these, car, these caves still exist, although people don't let you, you're not allowed in there uh, largely. But that is a big producer of that very creamy and delightfully uh, subtle Parisian stone, limestone, Parisian limestone, Pierre de Paris. But also, uh, particularly in the northern areas, there are big deposits of gypsum and gypsum produces plaster of Paris and that plaster of Paris which again is one of the distinctive elements of which the city is built is very very obvious and it helps give Paris this sort of unity of feel if you like of of colour palette which is very distinctive very little brick incidentally in uh, Paris until uh, later later periods. So we talked about the Renaissance and the development of Paris culturally, artistically and and physically. Obviously, after the Renaissance, we have this period of, of reformation across Europe and France wasn't exempt from its problems with religion, was it, at that time? Yeah, no, to go, to go back to the 16th century, that's right. I've said that uh, Paris starts emerging, the city starts emerging. Uh, the, uh, the Actually, another building from that period is the Hôtel de Ville, which, although it burnt down in the 19th century, was recreated in very much the Renaissance style. You get print coming in, which makes you know enormous uh, difference. Paris becomes the printing capital. But then the Reformation in France really divides the country and divides Paris as well, actually, Protestantism does very well, actually, in France. There are big areas in uh, uh, France, but Paris itself becomes 
associated with the, what would you say, sort of radical Catholic wing, very, very antagonistic to Protestantism. And what you have uh, in the late uh, 16th century, from 1560s onwards, is a series of wars, internal civil wars, essentially, uh, between Protestant factions and Catholic factions, complicated by the fact it's not just religion, it's also over mighty subjects, you know, trying to get their foot in the political door and things like that. So it's very, very uh, tough. And then what makes it worse is the the Valois dynasty conks out. Uh, we're lacking a, a male heir on the, from the Valois from 1589. And not only is there then, well, who's going to uh, succeed, but the obvious successor by you know, the succession laws within uh, France at that time would be a guy who is Henry of Navarre, Navarre in the southwest of uh, France. He is a Protestant. Now, how on earth you get a Protestant king in a country which is riven by warfare, in which the Catholics are three quarters of the population, it's impossible. And so the only way that Henry IV decides to square the circle is to become a Catholic. He converts from Protestantism to Catholic. So he, he, the Protestants stick with him because, you know, he's obviously been a supporter. The Catholics are won over. And it creates the, the third branch of the uh, the royal house, the, the Bourbon house, which lasts down to the revolution and indeed a bit beyond. Uh, but so Henry IV, although those religious wars and that civil conflict, they do carry on after Henry IV into the early uh, 17th century. You have a sort of remodeling of the uh, monarchy uh, under Louis XIII, and particularly Louis XIV, which puts Paris again really at the heart of his plans. And of course, famously, the, the Sun King and the developments of the Grand Siècle were one of the great eras of Paris. What, what difference did that make to the city? Well, it's really interesting, you know, that, again, so much uh, building is goes on in that time, and a lot of it is power building. So if you go to the Louvre, you'll see the East Front. Well, that was put there, and most of the rest, much of the rest of it was put there in this period. And initially, uh, Louis XIV wants uh, his capital to be commensurate with what he thinks he is himself, which is the greatest ruler in uh, Western uh, Western Europe. He wants to make Paris the new Rome, and he instructs his famous minister, Colbert, to make sure this happens. And they, have, they put a lot of money into building works within the city. But, and this is a big but actually, Louis XIV was never a great fan of Paris as a city, or I should say he's less keen on Parisians maybe than he is on Paris, because in his childhood, when he's just a kid actually, there is a uh, sort of outbreak of uh, civil disturbance, the well, civil war really, the so-called Fronde. At one moment, his mother has to lead a crowd of Parisians into his bedroom to reassure them that he hasn't fled Paris and is still there. So he has a pretty bad view of Parisians as being a bit of a rumbustious and turbulent crowd. And this doesn't go down well at all with a king who thinks that he's there by divine right and has absolute power, etc, etc. So of course, from the 1680s, he builds Versailles and is very, very rarely in Paris as well. And I think this is one of the interesting things about Paris in the 18th century is this, this, is this kingless capital, really, which still remains great, which still has all the sort of flaunting architecture of the, of the dynasty, but which makes itself uh, in some ways uh, more interesting without the king by becoming a big 
major intellectual center, the center of the Enlightenment, as well as the big consumerist center of one of the big consumer centers of, of the world, which uh, creates fashion, creates the sort of uh, luxury objects that everyone wants to buy, because Paris fashion, both in in clothing and, and dress, uh, but also in, in sort of furnishings becomes the sort of uh, the, 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 the top end set of brands, if you like, which people want to associate themselves with across uh, the Western world. And can we still see any evidence of that today, both the intellectual and the commercial side? Funnily enough, it's uh, the commercial side you can see. Uh, I, I mean, uh, one of the places I'm going to suggest people might want to go is the uh, Rue Saint-Honoré, which is the fashion centre. It's where the uh, essentially design houses really start up. Uh, one of the things they used to do uh, every uh, season, every year, there'd be two seasons, as indeed there are now, two fashion seasons. And they'd had these uh, dolls which were mass-produced. And they would dress this doll in, the, you know, either the spring fashion or the autumn fashion. And they'd send them out all over the world, you know. So everyone knew what people were wearing in Paris that year. Now, if you go down the Rue Saint-Honoré, you see there are the, the remnants of that world. In terms of the intellectual stuff, there a lot of it goes on in... The, the intellectual goes on in printing houses, many of which have, have gone, or in private residences, uh, the salon, things like that. You can see some of the academies, which were actually constructed a bit earlier. One of the places you can uh, go to, I think, to get a good sense of it, is some of the cafes, because the coffee houses, again, a uh, place of intellectual ferment in the Enlightenment, and some of these still exist. The most famous is the Procop, where Voltaire and just about everyone you ever heard about uh, in the in the 18th century intellectual world uh, went to have uh, coffee. You could also go into uh, the other side of the uh, river on the right bank to the Palais Royal. The Palais Royal was built in the 17th century, but it really becomes a major commercial hub, almost like a mall, a modern mall in the late uh, 18th, 18th century. And there are one or two shops there, and in particular, the restaurant, uh, the Veifour, Le Grand Veifour, which has maintained its sort of 18th century style. There's beautifully, beautifully interior uh, design and paintings there. So you see these sort of little bits and pieces around the place but a lot of the enlightenment goes on in the head in some ways and the built environment isn't uh, changed to uh, accommodate those uh, intellectual uh, movements so you're painting a, a vivid picture of a city where people are, are talking and shopping and drinking and enjoying themselves if you've got money but of course for a big part of the population that wasn't the case and that became increasingly clear throughout the 18th century didn't it that's right. I mean, and if you look at the, obviously the French Revolution, one of the things that happens is that um, the people take power. The, the, the pe and the people, by the people, it's the people of France, but the people of Paris are in the leading edge of change. You know, the, the number of the revolutionary days, the 14th of July when the Bastille is stormed, the overthrow of the king on the 10th of August in the Tuileries Palace near the Louvre. These days of uh, political action are incredibly important and, and it builds up the tradition, which does date back, you know, before the uh, revolution, but really builds up to this idea that the French popular classes are the sort of revolutionary yeast, if you like, of uh, radical change in the 19th century. It is one of the features. There are others, and historians dispute even this, but I, myself, I don't think there's any doubt, that in the 19th century, when people start thinking, well, let's modernize Paris, and in particular, Napoleon III's prefect, Baron Haussmann, think they've got to redo the city. One of the things they do is basically take over or take possession of 
popular Paris, those central, most ancient areas of Paris, which are very often, you know, we don't get that sense now, overbuilt, you know, tenement buildings, terribly crowded, very narrow streets. You get some of that, but it's usually off the boulevard. You don't get that much of it. But that's what really all the centre is like. And he says, well, basically, we need air, we need uh, to ventilate, we need fresh air to sort of get rid of all the disease and all the popular radicalism that's uh, around in these places. And he just drives these boulevards of us through the center and as he's doing that what he's doing is this is i won't say it's gentrifying because that's far too gentle and uh, moderate a term he's basically modernizing it in the sort of epic uh, epochal uh, way and driving out the popular classes from the center of paris so you've got this movement out to some extent, the suburbs are always where, where the poorer people live, but it becomes much stronger, uh, if you like. So basically, Hausmerner and Napoleon III and then the Third Republic after as well reoccupy central Paris and make it fit for the bourgeoisie to live in. And basically, you know, okay, you've got some workers there as well. They have to come and work somewhere, but they're pushed outwards. And you've got this sort of pushing outwards, which goes on over the 19th century. By the 20th century, famously, uh, people talk about in political terms when everyone's got the boat, they say, well, you know, Paris is pretty conservative politically, but it's surrounded by a red belt because uh, they, all the suburbs are basically workers' suburbs where they're all voting voting left. So that sort of um, modernization of the uh, city does go hand in hand, as I think you were saying, really, uh, with very straightforward and uh, class attitudes towards the uh, poor uh, and uh, attempt to make of Paris a city in which the ruling classes uh, can feel happy and uh, from which uh, the poorer classes are marginalised. So clearly from the end of the 18th century, from the revolution, which began 1789, then the rise of Napoleon afterwards, we had um, the Second Republic, the, the revolutions, not just in France, but across Europe in 1848 and that period, the, the Second Empire with Napoleon III. It was a pretty tumultuous century. And of course, as you say, Hausmann's changes to the architecture had an impact to the population at the centre, but the, the 20th century was also pretty stressful for Paris. Yeah, that's right. I mean, 20th century uh, Paris. In some ways, I think the First World War really is a major, what would say, sort of turning point in in Paris's history because so much of the Paris that we, even that we know uh, now, was remodeled and very often rebuilt from the middle of the 19th century onwards. Uh, Or if it wasn't rebuilt, it was framed. You know, you think of something like the Bastille Monument or or Notre Dame, actually. Notre Dame would be a good example, for example, uh, of this, actually, because um, obviously Notre Dame's always been there. But until uh, until Baron Haussmann, in front of it, where now we have this enormous place, you know, we all stand back and look at Notre Dame, etc. It's full of popular housing. It's absolutely full of uh, popular housing housing. So, you know, those monuments from the past are framed in a very Hausmannian way, sort of big boulevards, vistas down the end of it. A lot of the 19th century, the sort of building, uh, the apartment blocks, etc., etc. And that style is, Hausmann and Napoleon III disappear in 1870, but under the Third Republic, they continue with that style. And it becomes Paris, modern Paris, essentially, right through to 1914. 1914, the money runs out. And indeed, France has a very tough War. I mean, Paris is uh, famously um, nearly invaded. There are breakthroughs on the uh, uh, Western Front, in which, particularly at Verdun, uh, in which looks like the Germans are going to move very swiftly towards Paris. Uh, only a 
set of Parisian taxis sent out the, to the front carrying extra uh, recruits saves the day uh, in Parisian uh, legend. Uh, but then after the war, very poor very, very little public building in Paris between uh, the wars. And then, of course, in 1939, 1940, one of the darkest uh, moments uh, in Parisian history with the uh, overthrow of the uh, Third Republic and the installation of the Vichy regime and essentially Nazi occupation of Paris. And that, obviously, that there's a lot of historical interest and still political interest in, in that moment, uh, but it is a particularly uh, bad moment. France comes out of that war possibly even poorer, even poorer than it was after the First World War. And it takes a little time for, for Paris really to get its, get its mojo back, uh, so to speak, in the 50s uh, and 60s. Intellectually, it's going strong. You know, you've got the existentialist movement on the bank there with Jean-Paul Sartre and the others in the late 40s and early 50s. But actually, a, a sort of resumption of growth, a sort of rethinking of the city uh, only gets going in the 1950s. So you've talked about the various eras of Paris's development from the Romans, the medieval period, the the great developments of the 17th century and the Belle Epoque of the end of the 19th century. I'm going to ask you now to pick five sites from Paris that give readers an insight into a particular moment or theme in Paris's past. Yeah, I thought a bit about this and I've come up with five places which are very different and are scattered chronologically across Paris's history, but are also sort of places to reflect in and about. Uh, and the first of them is, I mentioned earlier, the Paris arena, because the Roman arena, it is actually quite a big arena. It's like a sort of big circular sort of thing. But it was only discovered when they were trying to build a bus depot in the 1880s. And at that moment, they thought a bus depot was far more important than a Roman arena. And they carried on with the bus depot. But when they were extending that in the late 80s and early 90s, they decided uh, they would actually take uh, the monument seriously. And they uncovered this very large building, but very little of it remains apart from the the sort of design of the place. A lot of the uh, rather low um, uh, seats around it were actually put there. It's a sort of disney version, if you like. But it is completely tucked away. You know, we're so used to our Parisian monuments after Hausmann being sort of set in the vista, you know, you see from afar down a, a straight boulevard, that this sort of out-of-the-way place. In fact, one of the, the, the obvious way to get to it is off the uh, Rue Monge, and you actually go through a little passageway, a covered passageway between shops to get to it, you know. Then you found it, and it's this haven of peace uh, within Paris, where you just sit and the neighbourhood kids come and kick a football around or throw a frisbee or whatever. It's a delightful place just to sit and reflect and uh, put your feet up after a day's walking. The second uh, place, I, I, I know people are going to go to the Louvre and why not? And you should. But I think one place which I think might be interesting to just look at, and that again was only discovered much more recently, in fact, in the 80s, 80s and 90s, when they were rebuilding up the underground of the Louvre and, and putting the glass pyramid there, etc., etc. They thought they'd make a big mall, a shopping mall underneath it. It's called the Carousel uh, du Louvre. And when they did that, what they discovered was the foundation of the walls which the King Charles V at the end of the 14th century put there during the Hundred Years' War. Basically, to show, it's sort of to show Parisians this is a bastion 
and to keep the English out. And what is striking about it is they're sort of massive things. You know, we, we, we don't think of Paris like that, but that is so central to what we think of Paris now. You know, we think of the Louvre as like it's nearly the centre, and yet it's a couple of hundred yards away from the uh, from the centre. But that is the sort of the that st- reminds us of the military vocation, the military aspect of this city, the need to defend it uh, right through the uh, centuries. I have to have the revolution in, uh, don't I, as a French revolutionary historian myself. But the place I'm going to suggest, I bet you a lot of people don't even know about, it is the cemetery that is out at the monastery of Picpus, P-I-C-P-U-S. It was a monastery under the under the Ancien Regime, still is a, a monastery. But in the grounds there, you will find the cemetery that was created in 1794 for victims of the guillotine, just as the guillotine was really warming up in the summer of 1794. And there's a, what they basically did, they did, it wasn't a cemetery, it's more like a great big pit where they chucked the bodies in, uh, chucked the heads in after, obviously they'd been guillotined, put limestone uh, over and fill, filled it up but when uh, the, the, that, that stopped uh, the guillotining stopped in that sort of way in 70, 1794 and uh, in the 19th century they turned it into a 19th and early 20th century actually they turned it into a cemetery and a- any uh, anyone who was executed and it, it's the sort of what some of the elite families of the arist- French aristocracy were buried there and they, the families were allowed to put a funeral uh, you know like a stone, etc., etc., etc. One of the interesting and it's rather folkloric things about it, but which actually gives an incredible intensity to the site, is that the families of those people who were executed in that place and buried in that place in 1794 are allowed to uh, inter their, their family members to this day. And just going through it, it's a very extraordinary snapshot not just of the revolution, but of uh, of uh, French political life, because you see, okay, the Duke of this, he was executed in June 1794. His son, or great-grandson probably, shot down fighting for the uh, French Flying Corps in the First World War. Son, grandson, uh, deported, died in uh, Dachau or, or whatever. So you get this very extraordinary uh, sort of insight into a, an elite history, a political history of the elite, at the same time that you're in this uh, sort of place of uh, intense uh, violence. Again, like the Arena, only more so, it is so quiet, so few people know it. I hope not everyone's going to go there now, but uh, it is so quiet, it's so restful, and it's so thought-provoking that it's a, great, it's, it's a wonderful place to, uh, to visit. I, I did mention earlier that my fourth place would be the Rue Saint-Honoré because I think this is a really, yeah, as I say, it's the shopping centre. It's the, it's, the, it's the birth of consumer, this consumerist world in the Rue Saint-Honoré. All the big dressmakers and fashion icons are, uh, are down there. But if you go down it, because it's a very ancient street as well, you'll come across a monument, for example, to where Joan of Arc was um, uh, wounded with a, by an arrow, I think, crossbow arrow, when she was besieging the city in uh, 1428. There's a, and then if you journey a bit down the road, just north of the uh, uh, Place de la Concorde, you'll find a plaque saying that uh, Robespierre uh, lived here for uh, between 1792 and four. So you get again, you get a very interesting and reflective uh, slice of Parisian life, and uh, over the centuries, I think. And then my final one would be, this is just a personal favourite, and again, it's fun place to, to go to, but the Place Saint-Sulpice. My, my book on the biography of uh, Paris, I, I do a little thing on this, because it's it's really, um, a French writer called Georges Perec wrote a little pamphlet, really, called uh, which was basically based on him sitting in a cafe on the Place Saint-Sulpice, which you can still visit, and just looking at, and describing what he said. So, you know, people go by. 
a bus passes, a man carries, carrying a plastic bag go, goes by, uh, pigeons take off, some clouds come, there's a bit of rain, you know. So it's a sort of Paris without Paris, without the historic, without the busyness, the bustle uh, of Paris, but letting the bustle just be the spectacle. I think Paris is one of those cities which has always interested people in that it's sort of very planned, but on the other hand, when you actually are there, you feel you're making your own city. You walk around it following your own itineraries, putting the city together in a way that's of uh, value and will remain important uh, to you after, after the event. And so I think sitting in the Café de la Marie there, imagining yourself as Georges watching Paris go by will be a very good satisfying end for any journey uh, and visit to Paris. Wonderful and you you've spanned a good 2,000 years in your descriptions there so plenty of places for people to explore the past. Finally Colin perhaps you could share one piece of advice for any listeners who are planning a visit to Paris. Yes, I thought about this. I thought, well, obviously they have to buy my book, but I, I shouldn't say that. That would be too uh, egocentric. I did think the other thing I thought, well, you know, they're going to eat and they're going to drink. Maybe they should fast or maybe have a dry couple of weeks and then really enjoy it uh, most. But I, Finally, I ended up with uh, thinking, and this is the advice I always give to students I'm taking over there when I, when I take students over there, sensible shoes. Paris is best enjoyed on foot and you'll do a lot of walking and it's an extremely walkable city. You'll see so much and so intensely in Paris in a way that you don't necessarily in most other wonderful uh, cities, but you will really put the sole of the foot onto the pavement, I think, a lot. And um, uh, I think sensible shoes are an absolute necessity for any visitor to Paris. Absolutely, I think. Uh, well, hopefully listeners will be uh, inspired now to walk from the left bank over to the Marais and up to Montmartre and they're going to cover a lot of miles. That was Colin Jones. His latest book, The Fall of Robespierre, 24 Hours in Revolutionary Paris, published by Oxford University Press, is available now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.